0: This is the History Tavern Podcast. John Newman Edwards was a popular newspaper man and a historian who grew up devouring heroic tales of knights and soldiers. He was also a confederate and an unapologetic supporter of the Southern cause long after the Civil War ended. Matthew Christopher Holbert, the author of Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards, and his never-ending Civil War, drop by the History Tavern to talk about his brand new book. Our interview picks up after I asked about the relationship between the expansion of slavery into
1: the West and political violence. Thanks very much for, for having me and for reading the book. Um, so the 1850s, especially in the Western borderlands where most of my work is centered, is really sort of not only a microcosm of what becomes the broader war, but as you mentioned, A lot of it is happening there a a decade or so earlier. A lot of the violence we see as we're deciding, you know, where is slavery going to be allowed to expand legally into the West? And I mean, at one point, we're even still trying to figure out how in the world are we even going to decide how we decide? Uh, So we're just sort of throwing the door open for lots of random people to pile into places like Kansas with rifles and say, I know how I'll decide. I'll shoot anybody who doesn't agree with my side of this political equation. Uh, so of course you get people from both ends of the spectrum piling in and that's how the Missouri, Kansas border is basically the civil war seven or eight years in advance. But I mean, the 1850s generally speaking are sort of this, I joke with my students when we talk about this in lecture in historical time, it really does escalate quickly. Um, We go from arguing with each other about where slavery is going to be allowed to expand to Lawrence is sacked by uh, the precursor to Missouri bushwhackers. These border ruffians show up and sack the town. Then John Brown starts hacking people to death with broadswords. Then Charles Sumner is beat nearly to death on the floor of the Senate. This all happens in in historical time. It happens in the blink of an eye. Uh, And then before you know it, Somebody's lobbing shells at Fort Sumter. But this all really starts in the West. And we see a lot of Easterners who are surprised that it really came to this because we just spent the last 30 years always somehow we wheel out Henry Clay. You know, at the end, he's borderline immortal. Henry Clay always pops out and saves the day with this compromise. So people just kind of assume, well, we'll do that again. Uh, and then when the shots are fired, they sort of can't believe it. People in Missouri and Kansas could believe it because they'd been firing shots at each other for a very long time.
0: So John Newman Edwards uh, eventually finds his way to Missouri, uh, mm-hmm. but he's born, I think, in Virginia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about his childhood um you know, uh, he grew up in, I mean, his father dies when he's young. His mother is actually quite remarkable in raising his family, it seems. Yeah, just talk a little bit about that.
1: She, His mother is uh, a remarkable woman. So his father dies when he's uh, grade school aged. He's already got a brother and a sister. His mother's actually pregnant, um, and his second sister is born after Her father passes away. So if she didn't have enough on her plate to deal with becoming a widow, she's now got another mouth to feed just, you know, a month or so later. Um, but she is adamant John's mother is adamant that he is going to receive an education and that the family's upward trajectory, his father had come from a family that had an esteemed name in Virginia but their specific branch of the family tree wasn't particularly wealthy. There wasn't a lot of affluence that had come with the name. Um, but his father had really been starting to make something of himself. He was, be- he was sort of an up and coming man in the community. Uh, he's got this young family, was sort of, you know, the, the, Norman Rockwell of the portrait of a family in the, the 1840s and fifties. And then all of a sudden he dies after this quick illness and she just refuses. To let this tank her son's prospects, so she puts him through school on virtual she's living on virtually nothing she ensures that he receives uh an education better than what more affluent children probably would have received she's the first to recognize that he's sort of a young writing prodigy she gets him involved in a newsroom from a very early age and This sort of lays the groundwork for what he'll do for the rest of his life. He's writing in one way or another, and that's how he inserts himself into all these different stories. This is sort of the magic of Edwards. He's not an A-list celebrity. You could make a case that he – I shouldn't. I'm sure someone at the press is saying, no, Uh, you could make the case that he's not even a B-level celebrity. The magic of him is that he is the C-level man behind the curtain in so many a level or a list stories and it's all because of his writing background.
0: What is he reading growing up? I think this is really important and you know obviously this is a through line throughout the whole book. What 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 kind of books is is he reading?
1: He is hopelessly romantic. He is hopelessly nostalgic. He is always looking for a past that can never exist. One with a strong father figure with male heroes. So He loves King Arthur. He loves these sort of, you know, stock and trade war stories. There's always the great man who comes in at the end of the day and saves the damsel in distress. He loves this because in some ways these characters become his surrogate father. Um, And as he internalizes that over the course of his life, as he grows to adulthood, that stops being the way he coped and entertained himself. And it basically morphs into his worldview as an adult. And politically, economically, socially, he sees the world through the lens of all that reading, all those stories, those Arthurian legends, those medieval tales of chivalry that he had absorbed as a child. Uh, And when you combine that with what was probably sort of a backward-looking nostalgic personality to begin with, this is how you become someone with a biography about you, called Oracle of Lost Causes. I want to
0: ask a little bit about the challenges that you face in covering someone like John Newman Edwards, who who did write so prolifically, so, so much stuff. But obviously, I mean, some of it's bull, some of it, you know, it's all tinted. It's yeah. all through his world lens. So, you know, uh, which you've identified. So yeah, But can, can you just talk about like... It's not that you don't have enough. It's that you've got to now sort of weed through this and, 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 and pull, pull back the curtain a little bit.
1: Well, he's this is an interesting task to write about someone like him for a few reasons. The first is, as you've mentioned, he leaves behind this voluminous body of writing. He wrote books. He wrote untold column inches, uh, multiple newspapers in the United States and in Mexico, Um, he's got letters that he's left behind, but because he's always sort of writing as the man behind the scenes, shaping the memory of someone else or putting a political spin on something else, he's never really writing about himself. So the task with a lot of the the primary literature that he created and left behind was sort of reading between the lines of it and figuring out, well, what is he telling us about himself without actually telling us um and he's got a i mean it's a wild life he's really got a made for the movies life he's fighting he's in the war he's fighting duels he has a feud with his father-in-law because of a what even then was considered an incestuous marriage and that's saying something right in the mid-19th century America's he's in rehab he's fighting duels um just you know there's a lot packed into this guy's 50 years. So trying to sort of use that story as a vehicle for telling a much broader story um, was sort of the big challenge. And I I hope it comes across that I, way in the book.
0: It certainly does. Um, and I want to, you know, I think, you know, sort of in that in that direction. I mean, obviously, you talk a lot about Missouri, that's where he moves. And you know, you describe Missouri in this era as like a little Dixie and in, in and of itself. A lot of Virginians and other Southerners have moved there. But, you know, you you add, I think, this this texture to, you know, what are generally, you know, what's generally thought about the Civil War. I mean, obviously, Missouri is a very important border state. Um you know, but what is what is, uh, you know, John Newman Edwards relationship with with Missouri? I mean, yeah, obviously he's fighting for the Confederate Army, but there's a there's a fascination with Missouri. I mean, I, I think, that, you know, him and and uh, Joseph O. Shelby, who we can also talk about, you know, I think more than anything, want to, you know, fight and make Missouri part of the Confederacy.
1: They absolutely do. Um missouri is interesting and especially so in the context of john's life because he serves missouri in a regular military capacity when he joins up when he follows shelby off into the war they're a regular unit of cavalry they sort of work their way up through state forces um, and then shelby later gets uh, a, a confederate you know the equivalent of a federal commission from the confederacy so on one hand they deeply cared during the war about reclaiming Missouri from the Union. Missouri's occupied. The Confederacy's never really in control of Missouri. The closer you get to St. Louis, the tighter the grip of the federal government is. So they go on these incursions, these expeditions into Missouri, and this is always the one where we're gonna take back Missouri, we're gonna pull it into the Confederacy, and we're finally gonna realize our potential alongside Virginia and all these other great Southern states But then at the same time, his real claim to fame, if Edwards has any historical immortality, it is as the original historian of the other belligerents in Missouri, bushwhackers who are waging an irregular war. They're basically, uh, they are insurgents who never join up with regular forces who would much rather fight locally and by a very different set of rules. And Edwards realizes very quickly once the war is over, that Missouri has a memory problem. It's never going to be remembered the way Virginia was or North Carolina was or even Georgia was for contributing to the Confederacy proper. So he's going to have to take this in a different direction if he wants to keep cultural linkages between Missourians who see themselves as Southerners and then people who have real ex-Confederate credentials. So rather than doing what the rest of the country is doing and saying, these guys were long-haired maniacs, They scout people, they mutilate the dead, they don't differentiate between civilians and real soldiers. He says, well, yeah, of course they did all that stuff. They cared more than you did. They were willing to do the dirtiest of the dirty work. If everybody had fought like them, we'd be Confederate right now. We wouldn't be in the middle of reconstruction. And it's this sort of bizarre paradox going on because he himself is a major, in the Confederate cavalry, at the same time, he's venerating, you know, Bloody Bill Anderson and William Quantrill and Archie Clements, guys who, uh, to most of the country, were not men, who you wanted to put up on a marble pedestal.
0: I want to get back to sort of the impact that he had in shaping the post-war history, because it, it it is enormous, and you just touched on it. He he sort of had the Western corner, uh, you know, market cornered in terms of writing about it. Uh, But first, I want to, you know, his his journey after the war takes a pretty unexpected turn even further south into Mexico. And so, you know, here you go from this Civil War history, you know, largely based in Missouri and Arkansas, and then now he's crossing the border with a, a Confederate force, Uh, of many men into Mexico. And, you know, you have to set the scene of what's going on politically in Mexico, which is really fascinating. So first off, what's going on in Mexico and how the hell does John Newman Edwards fit into that?
1: So, you know, the United States is a mess in the 1860s and our mess creates the perfect diversion for the French to come in and create their own mess in Mexico. Um, You know, going all the way back to the 1830s, the Mexican government, after it breaks away from Spain, has been concerned that foreign powers are going to see the eastern coast of Mexico as easy grounds for invasion, where Texas basically ends up being. That's why they originally recruit Anglos into Texas to ward off this sort of foreign invasion. And then, you know, you fast forward through the Alamo and, you know, then the Spanish-American War um, and the Mexican government is still there. And France is just kind of waiting on the sidelines, waiting on the sidelines, and then we start our civil war and France says, well, Lincoln's not gonna be able to do anything about this. Like, let's get in there. So they're down in Mexico. Um, The French government basically is, it's a puppet monarchy set up with Maximilian, who's an Austrian Habsburg in charge, but it's really the French who are pulling the strings They've done basically whatever they can to push Mexican peasants to the side. They're allied with very elite forces uh, within the Catholic Church. So Maximilian, as it gets harder and harder for him to hold on to control, basically sees ex-Confederates as, hey, there are these other white guys who might come down here and be willing to help out. Uh, And that's really how Edwards and Shelby and these other confederados or confederate exiles from the iron brigade end up south of the border Uh, they refuse to surrender they don't want to be part of reconstruction so they travel through texas which is just like thunderdome uh in the the months right after the war it's a that's not a nice place to be uh it's just so far from the orbit of any law and order or authority they get to the mexican border and they have this encounter with does who are assuming they're coming to help them depose Maximilian, and then uh, Shelby's men say no, nope, it's the Empire for us. So they go to Mexico City, they meet with Maximilian, and they basically offer themselves up as mercenary forces. They're kind of like you know the Blackwater of the late 1860s, but now that the war is over, Maximilian realizes what a political misstep this would be if I take unreconstructed rebels into my military this is not like the french foreign legion this is giving the united states an excuse to come down here and throw me out so he won't take them as soldiers but he will subsidize these enormous tracts of land for them that have basically been stolen from peasants they set up neo-confederate colonies they're going to grow coffee instead of cotton and they really think for a little while they've got it made because They have this authoritarian, or they believe they have this authoritarian war. They've got a genuine Habsburg who is going to just wave his Imperial wand and give them all the things that Jefferson Davis was too weak to give them in the Trans-Mississippi. Of course, two years later, Maximilian ends up against the wall uh, in front of a firing squad and they all have to make a hasty retreat home. So Edwards is one of the few Confederates who kind of experiences Confederate defeat twice. They lose once in 1865, and then they have to deal with it again two years later in 1867.
0: What was his relationship with with Charlotte, Maximilian's wife?
1: That's an interesting question. And I think if you'd asked her, she probably would have given a different answer uh, than him. He is definitely enamored of her. This sort of goes back to what we were discussing earlier, this sort of concept of courtly love, where he's loving her from afar in a non-physical way. She might not actually even be aware that he's doing it, Um, but he really sees her as sort of the embodiment of perfect womanhood. She's pretty, she's educated, she's polite, she's very kind to former Confederates um, who are taking refuge in Mexico under her husband's regime. Um, So he has this sort of, he's almost like the kid in an 80s movie who's in love with the cheerleader for the whole movie, but the cheerleader never actually knows it. Their cross don't probably pass all that often in person, but later when he's back in the United States and he believes that she's died, he pins this obituary, poor Carlotta, and just pours his heart out and then finds out later that she wasn't actually dead and she goes on to survive him uh, by quite a long time. But she's also an interesting marker. Um, Once he kind of believes she's dead and he lets go of what could have been had that second Confederate experiment survive. This is really when he starts to transition into, he's got a new muse. He's replacing Charlotte with Jesse James. He's moving into outlawry, banditry. Um, Political terrorism is really going to kind of become his stock and trade for a little while. So she's also an interesting sort of breaking point for where we get to a new phase in his life. And he's finally leaving all that old baggage behind. So,
0: uh, Eventually he's he has to leave Mexico or he returns back to Mm -hmm. the United States. I think to Kansas and he uh, uh, starts writing again in a newspaper. And like always, he's a prolific writer. He's not just writing every day in the newspaper. He's writing books. So you know, Mm -hmm. sort of back to that question about his impact. As a historian, which sounds like it's significant because, like I said before, and like you write in the book, I mean, it was true then, and it seems true today. Everybody's focused on the east, and people want to hear about Virginia and in Gettysburg. Uh, but you know, there, there's a very important war that was happening in the west as well. So, can you talk about sort of uh, his impact on that history? Sure.
1: So he comes back from Mexico. Uh, he starts trying to find work as an editor in Missouri. Eventually, they end up, he's one of the founders of the Kansas City Times. And over the course of a couple years, he very quickly builds up a following. Um, He is sort of the voice of the downtrodden Western Missouri. And they really see him as someone who expresses their experiences and their hardships. So he's got this built-in audience by the time he starts releasing books. And they're not only willing to take his word for it, they're spreading this, as sort of the gospel truth of the history of the Western borderlands. So he's got a book about Shelby's brigade. He ends up with a book about Shelby's experiences in the West and Mexico, and then noted guerrillas as sort of the magnum opus, his history of the guerrilla war. But he, so it's sort of a perfect storm in that he brings a ready-made audience. He's producing something that they want and need and nobody else has done it. So he gets to be the only show in town for quite a while. He fills this void, and by the time other people come along and try to say, well, I don't know if that was quite right or here's the other opinion, for a lot of people, it's just too late because he has basically become the Bible of the Civil War in the Western borderlands for pro-Confederates. Unionists are never buying um, his accounts of the war, but he's not really interested And what they have to say because he's got a significant enough following among former confederates Um, and because he's got so much unchallenged influence for so long and because even once we get into the 20th century guerrilla warfare until maybe the last 20-ish 25 years was really kind of a fringe topic among academic historians he basically stands um, there are books that come out in the 1950s and 60s that push back a little bit or sort of make things look more official, but a lot of people still just go back to Edwards, and that book comes out in 1877. So um, he's got multiple generations of people who look back at his history of the guerrilla war as the history, and that's sort of one of the challenges of writing his biography is. Forcing people to reckon with the fact that he was a political pundit. He had an agenda. He was not a trained, objective historian. There's a lot of truth in what he writes and that he had access to the war generation and he could tell their stories. But the spin he's putting on it and the things he adds in and the dialogue that randomly comes from nowhere. Um, these are things that if we really want to understand the guerrilla world, we're going to have to you know, reckon where this came from. And both sides do it. Uh, there's, there's sort of the Edwardian equivalent on the union side, but not nearly so well known as Edwards. Uh,
0: so, you know, the, the reconstruction in the post-war years are uh, pretty difficult to understand, you know, and pretty difficult to follow. Um, and I'm not sure Edwards' story makes it that much. He's, you know, uh, sort of reading, <laughs> reading, his, you know, he ends up, su- how does he end up supporting Horace Greeley, who is a northern abolitionist newspaper editor, you know, I think in the presidential uh, campaign of 1872, I think it's just, it's a sort of, a, um, I don't know, it gives us sort of an, maybe a little bit of understanding, not just of the national scene, but maybe what's going on in Missouri
1: as well. So he's, he's an interesting lens to both the state level and then the national level political developments during Reconstruction. Initially after the war, the hope is, will democrats will regroup will reclaim the power that we had before and we'll kind of just you know get back to business as usual legal slavery has gone but you know as people are discovering other places with black codes that's not necessarily the end of the world there are still ways to you know trap former slaves in debt tie them to the land basically control their lives just without literally owning them um but because of Reconstruction policies and because Missouri is basically a microcosm of the country, Western Missouri is heavily Confederate. Eastern Missouri, anchored in St. Louis, is heavily Unionist. It's got a large German population. Um, it's not that simple to just take back Missouri the way you might reclaim Alabama or the way you might reclaim Georgia or South Carolina. Um, so they lose. They lose a lot of these early contests, and eventually they lose so much that they're willing to just start choosing what they believe are the lesser of evils. So you start to see a movement in Republican circles once you get into the 1870s that's basically kind of along the lines of, this has gone on long enough, we've afforded former slaves enough rights, and we're done. Um, So you start to see a schism among Republicans radicals really want to keep pushing a reconstruction agenda, more conservative Republicans who aren't particularly on board with full racial equality just say, yeah, we already we kind of did what we're going to do. And it's time to pull the plug on this. And they need to stand on their own two feet. Edwards and other Democrats see this and think we could work with that Uh, if we could create a coalition with somebody like Greeley that just helps get reconstruction off our back. We can deal with, you know, driving to the end zone once that's done, but we've, we've really just got to get started. So they tried to go that route. It doesn't work obviously at the presidential level. And then even if he had been elected, really would have died, um, very early in his first term. And when working through those normal political channels doesn't pan out, this is when Edwards has the epiphany and he realizes. I can turn these kids who never really came in from the bush during the guerrilla war into pro Confederate anti-reconstruction Robin hoods and I can wield them against reconstruction policy. And I can rally the normal people of Missouri to my cause. And he does that very effectively for a few years, but the problem with a plan that relies on crime and terrorism, uh The more control Democrats take back, the less they feel like they need the James Younger gang uh, to be bandits or to be, you know, basically political terror operatives. So eventually he's got to cut them loose as well. Uh, And then that's what really leads him into the guerrilla phase of his writing career.
0: So uh, and forgive me if I'm sort of mixing things up. Is this is this sort of where Jesse James fits into the story? I mean, he's got a fascination with him writes about yes
1: him well he's got more than a fascination you uh, you could make a very strong case that without john newman edwards none of us would know that jesse james we might still know the motorcycle guy which is unfortunately who my students think of now when i ask them who jesse james is um there are a number of letters that are published in newspapers that kind of turn jesse james into that jesse james Those are ghostwritten and then published by John Newman Edwards. He's essentially working as their publicist behind the scenes. And he amplifies that image of them as social bandits, as Robin Hood figures. And he, he basically crafts a story of, look at these clean cut American kids. They lived in Missouri. They grew up on farms. They never hurt anybody. They went to church. They were middle-class union marauders came into Missouri, they occupied where they lived, they drove them into the brush, and then when the war ended, they wouldn't let them come home. They forced these boys to turn to crime. It's the only way they can survive. And he he flips the script. And rather than the war being about slavery and secession and equal rights and preparing the union, it turns into a, look at these big meanie head unionist northerners and how they came down here and ruined the lives of all these innocent farm boys and jesse james is sort of the face of all of them and it really resonates with people now the problem for jesse james is that as edwards is successful in politics using that social bandit narrative the more success they gain the less necessary the social bandits become and eventually edwards has to sort of go legitimate and cut them loose. Um, Frank takes the hit and tries to go straight. Jesse's just never able to. Um, And then of course he's got his own, you know, demise at the hands of the Ford brothers. But later when Frank decides he wants to turn himself in and go through the legal process, it's John Newman Edwards who walks into the governor's office with him and says, this is Frank James. He's here to surrender he helps him he gets him lawyers he fundraises he sees him and his family through this entire legal process um so he again this is kind of that he's he's the wizard of oz for all of these bigger stories when you start threading them together is when we see the value of telling his story in one coherent piece
0: can you talk a little bit about his struggle with alcoholism i mean you you already mentioned you know that he in and out of Rehab, The 19th century version of it, at least, which actually didn't sound that, you know, 21 day programs. I mean, it doesn't sound that different. Um, But, you know, he you sort of say he's sort of a fitting representative in one way of the silent sufferers, you know, representing. you know, soldiers after the Civil War, who, who many came out of the war with alcohol, you know, alcohol problems. But he's also suffering with something else that I think sort of goes to. Sure. You make this this awesome point about the West, and you know, the West not necessarily being a geographic, uh, uh, you know, being defined geographically for him and others, but this concept and this idea being lost, and that seems to be mm-hmm. part of his struggle. So, can you sort of sort of weave sure. that together?
1: so the drinking is probably a symptom of byproduct of problems related to his personality and nostalgia and his childhood that he had before the war um and then you add in the traumas of the war and just some of the awful things that he sees and experiences and then that's compounded by losing in 1865 and then thinking you've got this great second chance in mexico and then you lose again in 1867 and what he really starts to, to realize and to have to reckon with, as you mentioned, is that the West had been this great blank canvas to him because he's, you know, in sort of Turner-esque style, he's discounting that tens of thousands of people already live there and might lay claim to, you know, places they've been for thousands of years, but he sees the West as this great blank canvas. And if Southerners can just get their hands on it, they can recreate that the the old, old world Europe, the kings and queens, the knights, the chivalry, the aristocracy, where everybody knows their place, where society is always in order, where you don't have radical social movements, there are no isms, right? Um, basically there's no uh there is no left-leaning uh political group in king arthur right so when he loses that he realizes the world he'd spent his life trying to shape is just not going to happen so he finds solace in two places in a bottle he just sort of drinks himself into a a a literal stupor um there are stories of him going on these just epic binges and his friends these other editors it's kind of an open secret wherever he lives. People know that he's a raging alcoholic, but it's, it's kind of like the way the press hid um, some of Kennedy's disabilities or some of FDR's disabilities. He's too important to their movement to let the broader public know what's going on with him behind the scenes. Um, so he'll drink himself nearly to death on several occasions to cope with this. And then he tries to basically write and then live in the things that he writes these the world he'd rather be in is kind of what he's putting down on the page but the less and less that helps him cope the more he drinks the more he drinks the faster this decline is he's got one really standout friend who in some ways even though they're the same age is kind of his father figure in the second half of his life morrison munford is also an editor um another former confederate and He's the guy who sort of supports John financially. Um, he's the guy when John goes to fight the duel, who promises that he'll take care of John's wife, Jenny, and the kids. He's also the guy who pays for John to go to rehab multiple times. Um, and rehab then if you could afford to go, basically meant you were gonna go live in the, I hesitate to call it a resort because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. You'd go stay in this treatment center, kind of a a stay away hospital. And they would slowly wean you off of alcohol, but the way they were helping you deal with the symptoms of coming down off the alcohol was in John's case, you would take something called the gold cure, which was basically this cocktail of other narcotics. So you're coming down off the alcohol high, but then you're being pumped full of these other drugs while you're there. You think this is great this guy's a genius he's really curing me you go home and you stop taking the laudanum and the opium and who knows the morphine who knows whatever else is mixed up in this little bottle and you relapse and each time he relapses it's harder and harder they end up having to send his sons off to boarding school his daughter's really the one who sort of sees the worst of it which to me is the saddest part of his personal story is that she's then the one there when he dies. Um, she always seems to kind of get the short end of the stick with him.
0: Well, it's an absolutely fascinating book and a, and a fascinating man that, you know, just reveals so much about, uh, you know, the West and the Civil War. Um, I want to thank you very much. Uh, the book is Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards and His Never Ending Civil War, Matthew Christopher Holbert. Thank you so much. Fantastic book. I hope everybody, it's brand new. Everybody check it out. Thanks,
1: man. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.